All right, John chapter 13. I'm going to read Luke 6, verse 46 first. It says, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? In John 13, verse 13, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am, if you notice the word he there is in italics, it was added. He's the I am. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. So tonight, you know, I'm not going to preach on foot washing. We don't believe in foot washing. That's not the subject of this passage anyway, by the way. The subject is service, being a servant. He just uses foot washing as an illustration of service. That's all that is. Uh, I grew up doing that, and I don't really care to start it again. Thank you. <laughs> Mennonites do foot washing. It either smells like feet or Clorox, one or the other. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you, uh, I want to look at, you call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Master and Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your word tonight. We thank you that we have our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is our Master we thank you for such a loving, caring, compassionate master who guides us into all truth, who leads us in plain paths, in the way of righteousness for his name's sake, for our good and for his glory. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we look into the word of God tonight and we see some things that he is master of and Lord of that we can be encouraged and challenged. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the word master means teacher, and of course he was the greatest teacher who ever lived, although he's more than a teacher. The word Lord means to he to whom a person or thing belongs, by which he has power over deciding. So the Lord means that if he is my Lord, he has power over deciding what I do and what I don't do, where I go and where I don't go, what I say and what I don't say. It's his right. Servants don't have rights. They really don't have rights. And if you really know the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll give up your rights to Him. Because His ways are perfect. He knows, He knows what's best for you and I. He is the possessor and disposer of all things. Of course, we read from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 this morning, where it says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him are all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, 
whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Revelation 4.11 tells us that, that he created all things by him and for him, for his own pleasure. So he is our master and Lord. And I want to notice some several things that he's master of. First of all, he's master of our circumstances. He's to be master of our circumstances. In John chapter 2, in verses 1 through 11, we know the story. There's a wedding in the Cana of Galilee. And the Bible says in verse 2, And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. He saith to him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles, Jesus came of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So here they have this situation, whether out of wine or grape juice. Uh, I don't believe, you know, we're not talking about wine that makes men drunk. But anyway, it's fruit of the vine. That's what the word means. And so they're out of it. You know, this is what the only thing they had to drink at the wedding. It'd be kind of embarrassing if you served half your guests at the wedding and you ran out of food or drink. You had nothing to give them. That's a bad circumstance. It'd be very humiliating. But Mary, of course, knowing who Jesus is, suggests you know, to him, or mentions to him, that they're out of wine, and then says to them, whatever he says, you do it. Whatever he says, you do it. You know, sometimes you might find yourself in sex or circumstance, singled out, made a spectacle of. A difficult place. But if the Lord is the master of your life, he, if he's the disposer of everything in your life, he has allowed you to be put in that place for a reason, for a purpose. Yeah, it's kind of hard for us to remember that when we get in those places, isn't it? But nothing happens to us. I don't believe that anything happens to us by chance. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, um, and I think it's in verse, yeah, verse 11, in whom also we obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God works all things out for his own purposes and for your life, and for your good. And so you may find yourself in an embarrassing circumstance or a difficult circumstance. You might find yourself in a tight spot. You know, God allows those things to develop us. To develop us. Yeah, it's good, I always say, it's good for children to learn to have some bumps and bruises in life. 
have some hardships. Because welcome to real life. Real life's not just fun and games. See, what's wrong when our society is too many children have grown up thinking everything is fun and games. Everything is handed to you. That you don't have to work for anything. You don't have to earn anything. That you're entitled to it. Well, you know, those woke people that are getting all these handouts are in for a rude awakening one of these days because all those handouts are going to stop whenever the left fully gets its way. You see, see, circumstances, many times difficult circumstances, are used or are allowed in our lives by the Lord to develop our character. Look at a couple of verses here. Acts, not Acts, Exodus chapter 14. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14 and verse 4. Let's start at verse 1. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before uh, Paharahoth, and between Migdal and the sea. Over against Bel-Zephon, before it you shall encamp by the sea. Now, if you knew anything about the geography of that area, you would stop and say, now wait a minute, why? Do he, is he directing us to go there? Because we've got the sea in front of us and the mountains on the sides, we have no place to flee to. It's not a good place to be. Notice verse 3, but there's a purpose. God has a purpose in this. For favor will save the children of Israel. They are entangled in the wilderness. The wilderness has shut them in. See, this is God's plan all along. Shut them in in the wilderness. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Drop down to verse 14. Verse 13. And Moses said, and of course, so we know the Egyptians pursued after them, and the children of Israel are beside themselves. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. See, I have brought you right here to this place so that I can be glorified, so that I can demonstrate to you that I will fight for you. When you get to the land, I will fight for you. I will give you the land. You know what? When they got to the land, they forgot that, didn't they? They were in a sticky situation, as we would say. But they were right where God wanted them. They were in the circumstance that he was master of. That he had control of. And you think he can't control our circumstances? Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. First Kings 11. Verse 1 says, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. 
And, of course, these turned his heart away from the Lord. And then in verse 13, it says, How be it, I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe unto thy son for David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. And the Lord, notice this, stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the king's seed in Edom. Verse 23, And God stirred him up another adversary, Rezin the son of Eliada, which fled from his lord, Hadazazer, king of Zobah. And verse 27, uh, verse 26, And Jeroboam the son of Nebat, an Ephrathite of Zeradah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zerah, a widow woman, even he lifted up his hand against the king. So, you know, God's stirred up all these adversaries against Solomon for a purpose. See, Solomon had turned his heart away from the Lord, and the Lord was trying to get his heart back to himself. Solomon was bringing sin into the nation of Israel with these strange women and their false gods. And, he was, and so he was causing this wickedness. You know, you think about all these false gods. Some of them are baby sacrificers. They're like the abortion crowd of modern day. That's what they're equal to. Sexual pleasure is part of all that. And babies get in the way of that. And so God stirs up an adversaries, three adversaries unto Solomon to try and turn Solomon's heart back to the Lord. <clears throat> uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 or chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. In verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure, of course this is the Apostle Paul, through an abundance of revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. The messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So the Lord allowed a thorn in the flesh in the life of the Apostle Paul to keep him from being exalted. To keep him from becoming proud. You know, God's a master of circumstances. And sometimes God allows difficult things or difficult people into your life. Not so you can react and get angry at them, but so that you can develop your own character. You know, I was impressed. We had the missionary family, the Wilhites here. And I think it was the wife was telling my wife that one of the children... So, you know, of course, they have, what, 11, 12 children. And, you know, one of the children, a couple of them have trouble getting along. And, and the parents told them, them, look, you need to learn to get along. 
you learn to get along with each other because there may be somebody in life that the Lord places in your path that's difficult to get along with. And if you can learn to get along with your siblings, you'll be able to get along with other people in life. And the idea is, look, friction can develop you. I'll be honest with you, I've learned a whole lot more about God and His Word and about my, what I believe when I was, has, have been tested and tried and try, t- told I was wrong than I ever learned in good circumstances. When I've been challenged. You see, look at James chapter, chapter 1. This is what James chapter 1 is all about. <clears throat> you know, so often we become angry or upset at somebody that we don't understand or have trouble with. Instead of being understanding and being compassionate and, 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 uh, and working in our own life to develop our own character, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, James 1, 2. My brethren, count it all joy when to fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, you may perfect entire, wanting nothing. The trying of your faith worketh patience. Not when everything's going good. The trying. Do you ever think about you know, Hannah's barrenness was an opportunity for Peninnah to learn to be understanding and compassionate to somebody who, has, who suffered an affliction. And instead, she was proud and haughty and picked at her. Picked at her. You know, if she'd have been understanding and caring, there wouldn't have been the conflict in the home that there was. Hannah took her affliction to the Lord. And so, you know, in difficult circumstances, we need to ask a couple questions. Lord, why? It's not wrong to ask why. What am I supposed to learn here? What do you have for me? What do you have for me? What am I to get out of this? You know, so often we pray and we just want out of the circumstance. We just want it all to end. We just want deliverance. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted deliverance. Did the, did the Lord deliver him? No. He didn't. And sometimes praying for deliverance is not praying right. We need to pray for grace and understanding heart like Solomon asked for. That's what we need to pray for. Because after all, the Lord directs our paths. 
I mean, he directed the disciples into the ship where there was a violent storm. For a purpose. So he is the master of our circumstances. Secondly, he is the master of distance. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And verse 46 says, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judah into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. They said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. Now, the distance between Capernaum, what is this, um, uh, Judea of Galilee, and, and Cana, um, where this man was, is estimated to be 25 miles. 25 miles. So Jesus never saw this sick person. He only saw his father. But see, distance is not an issue with the Lord. It's not an issue. He's the master of distance. He is the Lord. In John chapter 1, uh, in verses 44 through 48, it says, Now Philip of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael saith unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. So in other words, what he's saying here is Jesus knew Nathanael. He saw Nathanael, and he knew Nathanael before the, uh, anyone else could see him, and he knew all about him. You, know, you may feel like at times, where is the Lord? But he is ever-present help in time of trouble. He's everywhere. In fact, in John chapter 3, there's an interesting statement in verse 13. 
Jesus, speaking, speaking to Nicodemus, said, And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, notice this, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now Jesus there is declaring that he is omnipresent. In other words, he's everywhere present. He's declaring to Nicodemus that he is the omnipresent God who created the world. I'm everywhere present. You know, Psalm 39, not Psalm, Psalm 139, uh, says, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting, mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. You know, he understands, the idea is that God understands what my thoughts will be before I think them. Now, that's hard, to, that's hard to imagine. It's hard to grasp. But he knows the end from the beginning. Thou compassest my path, my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind me before, and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Matthew Henry said, Psalm 139, that God has perfect knowledge of us, and all our thoughts and actions are open before Him. It is more profitable to meditate upon divine truths, applying them to our own cases, and with hearts lifted to God in prayer, than with a curious and disputing frame of mind. That God knows all things is omniscient, and that He is everywhere is omnipresent. All are truths acknowledged by all, yet they seldom rightly believed in by mankind. God takes strict notice of every step we take, every right step, and every wrong step. He knows what rule we walk by, what end we walk toward, what company we walk with. When I am withdrawn from all company, you know what I, he knows what I have in my heart. There's not a vain word, not a good word, but you know from what thought it came and with what intention it was uttered. Wherever we are, we are under the eye and hand of God. We cannot by searching find how God searches us out, nor do we know how we are known. Such thoughts should restrain us from sin. See, he is the master of distance. He knows everything about us. Psalm 94, 9, He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? Thirdly, He is the master of time. The master of time. John 5, verse 1. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There was at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. These lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down in a certain season of the pool, troubled the water, Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew. 
that he had been now a long time in that case. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? <clears throat> Jesus knew that he had been there a long time. He is the master of time. He's the master of time. In Acts chapter 1, the Bible says, Our times are in his hand. He saith unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. You know, the times and seasons are in the hand of God. The Lord's return is in the hand of God. It's not for us to know. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. You know, a lot of people were wondering, when's it ever going to happen? Just like the people are wondering today. The Lord's been saying He's been, you know, been, co- been coming for 2,000 years. When's it ever going to happen? In His time. And He's always on time. And He's never in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. But see, in the fullness of time, How's that Andy Bishop said, when the last one is saved, the elevator's going up. You know. It's in his time. In John chapter 7, you know, Jesus' brothers wanted him to go up to, go up to the feast. And in uh, verses 6 through 8, he says, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. You know, those in the world, it's always their time. But it wasn't yet his time to be crucified. He knew when it would be time. He would know. You know, time is something that God has given us that we are to manage. Psalm 90 and verse 12 tells us to so teach us to number our days. That we may try and remember how the rest of it goes. So teach us a number of days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. In other words, we need to number our days or use our time, endeavor to use our time as to the best to glorify God. You know, that's a difficult task. It's a task we all struggle with. We all have 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we waste a lot of time. But you know, he is to have priority in our time. Now that doesn't mean that we're in church all the time. That would be out of priority. You know, I've been in some churches where they had activities going on constantly. You know, I said they were out of priority. Because what that does, it damages family time. It restricts it. And I've seen a lot of those churches that 
most of the children go the way of the world. Because everything is centered around the church and there's not really a home life. God instituted the home before he instituted the church. Home's very important. <clears throat> I think church is the most important thing. But the home ranks right up there along with it. Because without good homes, you're not going to have a good church. They go hand in hand. They should not contradict each other if we give them each the right priority. Time. Seek ye first him God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, Psalm 37, verse 23. And we need to use our time wisely. You know, and sometimes that means hoeing your garden. You know, John Wesley, somebody asked John Wesley one time, if you knew the Lord was coming tonight, what would you do right now? Well, he said, the first thing I'd do is finish hoeing my potatoes. You know, sometimes that's the priority. Things like that. Providing for your own house. That's a priority. In fact, the Bible says if you don't provide for your own house, you're worse than an infidel. So we have to have wisdom from God to use our time wisely for his good, for our good and his glory. Fourthly, he's the master of quantity. In John chapter 6, John chapter 6, and verses 1 through 3, or 1 through 13, John 6, 1 through 3, And after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Jesus went up in the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming to him. He saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? This he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one may take a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. What are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. There was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number, about five thousand. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. And when they were filled, he said unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above them that had eaten. So he's the master of quantity. He took five loaves and two small fishes and blessed them and divided them and ended up with twelve baskets full. Which would meet the needs of the disciples each to have a basket. Do you ever think about that? Do you know that God knows what you need before you need it? He knows what you need before you need it. Now, we think this is a great miracle, and it is. But there are greater miracles than this in the Bible. How did God feed two million people in the wilderness? With quail. Those little wee birds. What's it take, about three or four person? <laughs> uh, you know, 
But God knows what we need before we need it. But here's the important thing. We need to accept what he gives us to meet the need. You know, God gave them manna every day. And they murmured and complained. They weren't content. It was the perfect food for that time. But the murmuring complaint. You know, things might get tight. Most of us don't know what it's like to things to really be tight. I remember my dad telling me, he was talking to, his name was Ivan Zook. He had a farm machinery dealership in Bell, top of the hill, Belleville. And Ivan was known to be pretty stingy with his money. But he said he remembers during the Depression where they ate oatmeal for weeks on end, and that's all they had. But you know what? It was enough. It was enough. You know, Elijah faced a famine. There wasn't much. Just little meat, little meal, and a little oil. But it was enough to get him through. The Lord multiplied. See, God is the master of quantity. Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He's also, number five, the master over natural laws. Verses 16 through 21 it says, when even has now come, the disciples went down in the sea. He entered into the ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus has come to them. Sea arose by reason of the great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were afraid. But he saith unto them, it is, not, it is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at land whither they went. Of course, this is the same account that's recorded in Matthew chapter 14. Where Peter walked on the water, actually. You see, Jesus is the master over natural laws. He can cause that the fire does not burn you. And that hungry lions do not eat you. He can take you through the sea on dry land. And cause the river to stop so you can cross over on dry land. A flooding river. By all points and circumstances, Paul should have been dead long before he died. Look at all the riots and the uprisings that followed him everywhere he went. See, God has power over natural loss. He's the master. And if God be for us, who can be against us? So when it looks like there's no way out, naturally, trust the Lord. 
because he made a way through the wilderness. You know, we sang that little song when you we were kids. I'm sure you're saying, the Lord made a way through the wilderness. All we have to do is follow. Now, it required faith. It required believing that he would do what he said. But he is the master. And then, I'll just, not, he's the master over death. In John chapter 11, and verse uh, 25 and 26, of course, Lazarus has died, and he tarries, or he's sick, he tarries two more days, and he dies. You know, the disciples questioned why he tarried, but he said he was glad for your sakes that he was not there. Now, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? So I was glad I wasn't there, so Lazarus died. But Jesus knew what he would do. See, the disciples thought, okay, he's dead, that's it. Mary Moth thought he's dead, that's it. But in verse 25 and 26, Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? In verse 39, he says, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. You know, he is the one that can deliver even from death. Paul talked about being delivered from death in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. He said, But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. So there was, and we don't know exactly when this time was, but there's some time in Paul's ministry where he thought, this is it. They're going to kill us. We're dead. But for some unknown reason, well, it really isn't known. He said, your prayer is helping together. God delivered us from death. We were appointed. By the way, you know we're all appointed unto death? The devil wants all of us dead. And much of the world doesn't care for you either. Did you ever think about that? We have a lot of enemies. We have a great adversary who's out to destroy us. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You see, he has the keys of death and of hell. Not the devil. He rose victorious over over the devil by the resurrection. 
So he is the master and Lord. Is he the master of your life? Do you trust him through the circumstances of life? Through the difficult times? Said, you call me Master and Lord, and so I am. Is he your Lord? Is he your Master? Let's pray.